Good morning. Welcome back to the program. In almost every way, today's workplace is very different than the world of Mad Men, for example. Yet one thing seems to be consistent, that the nexus between the culture of an organization and its performance is direct and powerful. But what constitutes that culture, and how can it be changed? It's ironic that the corporate culture often seems both immutable and fragile. One jerk can seemingly change it, and yet CEOs often spend whole careers trying to change an organization's culture. How can both be true? We're going to look inside organizational culture today and what impact it has on the ability of the organization to be quick and nimble. We're going to look at it through the eyes of dozens of leaders and CEOs who've talked with our guest, Adam Bryant. Since 2009, Adam Bryant has interviewed hundreds of CEOs for his corner office feature in the New York Times. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Corner Office. He served as the New York Times senior editor for features, as well as deputy national editor and deputy business editor. It is my pleasure to welcome Adam Bryant here to talk about quick and nimble lessons from leading CEOs on how to create a culture of innovation. Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Great to have you here. I want to talk about this seeming contradiction at first that so many CEOs and so many people talk about that it, in many ways it is easy to upset the apple cart. That as you talk about, you know, one jerk can ruin everything in terms of the culture of a company. And yet there are lots of elements of that culture that are baked in and that CEOs work overtime to try and change. And, and that's the big challenge of culture because it is pretty amorphous. It's hard to get your arms around it. it you can't put it down on a spreadsheet and, and measure it. Um, and it's very smart that you point up those contradictions, and 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 they do exist. I mean, uh, I just heard a great expression the other day. Uh, about if you let one bozo in the company, they they multiply like rabbits. And um, I know that's a mixed metaphor, but I think that's pretty true, and especially if that bozo is in a position to hire people because they're probably going to hire other bozos, and that can, you know, really throw off the the culture. And, and, you know, your listeners have probably been uh, in many of these situations where whether they're working on a small team or uh, in a in an office or a division, just one person who's really off key, who's got a grading personality, who isn't self aware, uh, it can throw off the uh, the the culture, um, uh, which which really is very fragile. Um, so there is there is that dynamic. But what you also said is is very true that it is hard to change it, and partly it's because um, it is hard to know how to do it. And one of the the questions that I tried to answer with this book, um, I didn't start with a silver bullet theory, I just started with a question. And it is, what are the biggest drivers of culture? Um, because, again, it's so amorphous, you and I could stand in front of a, a whiteboard and say, what's culture? We could put a hundred things on it, and, and all of them would be true. So the, the more important question to me is, what are the biggest drivers? What are the things that, if done well, have an outsized positive impact, and if done badly or not at all, have an outsized negative impact. And if, if you come up with an answer to the question, not that it's, you know, I've cracked some magic code or something, but if you can focus on those things, then I think you have a better chance of at least steering the culture a little bit. Is there a difference when we look at the culture in young organizations, in startups, or, or even intermediate-level organizations, versus deep-seated culture in big organizations that have really been baked in for long, long periods of time? 
Um, there is a big difference, and, and part of it is just simple mindset. When I interviewed Steve Case, one of the co-founders of AOL and now runs a firm called uh, Revolution, he, he had a great expression that really stayed with me. He said, at the end of the day, there's only two kinds of companies. There's attackers and defenders. And attackers, of course, are those startups who are you know, trying to disrupt some legacy organization, uh, disrupt an industry, and it's those big established companies um, that are trying to defend, and, and that mindset can affect uh, the culture a lot. I think each of them have their uh, their challenges. Um, with startups, things are moving so fast. I've heard this from so many CEOs that when they're trying to build a culture, they're just focused on shipping the next product out the door, and they don't think about culture. Um, and you have to be really deliberate about culture because you're going to get culture one way or another. <laughs> it's going to happen on its own. Uh, and Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, uh, told me that with his first company, before he went to Zappos, called Link Exchange, he was one of the co-founders, and he said it got to the point where he kept hitting the snooze button in the morning. He didn't even want to go to work. Um, and it was his own company, but it's because he wasn't deliberate about culture. So I think that's one of the challenges uh, uh, that a startup CEO faces on top of everything else that they have to worry about. They have to be really thoughtful about culture. For bigger companies, I, I think one of the biggest challenges they face is this notion of silos. Um, and as one CEO told me, it's silos are what topple the greatest companies and, you know, company like Microsoft, by its own admission last summer, talked about how the, the company's organizational structure uh, was not creating a kind of one Microsoft culture. Um, and so that's a phenomenon that creeps into a lot of big companies. And, and so CEOs really have to guard against that. And, and one of the chapters of my book is called A Simple Plan, which is, I think it's a leader's job to uh, be able to stand up in front of all their employees and say, um, everyone, this is where we're going, this is how we're going to get there, and these are, say, the three things that we're going to track and measure uh, as, as we go along towards that goal. And that has an important effect because it serves as an antidote to that silo behavior where everybody's kind of pursuing their own agenda. If you do come up with a simple plan, you are measuring the right things that can drive performance, um, then that has a great effect because it, I think as human beings, we're kind of wired to contribute to be part of a team. Um, we like to do that, but then it's the leader's responsibility to create the scoreboard and to say, okay, you know, yes, all those those goals make sense, and most importantly, I can understand how the work that I'm doing in my job can contribute to those goals. To what extent is leadership, and particularly a charismatic leader, both a blessing and a curse within the context of this cultural discussion? Um, it, it's not necessary. Um, uh, you know, it could certainly be helpful to have that outsized personality, but I've, having interviewed more than 300 leaders by now, I've, I've just talked to a lot of them who were quite open about the fact that they were introverts and that they weren't the sort of pick up the pom-poms and do the rah-rah speeches, um, that they liked operating more in, in sort of smaller groups and communicating that way. Uh, but I think even people who are quiet, who aren't those rah-rah types, that, that the passion uh, can come through uh, in other ways and, and just being 
really true to to your beliefs and living those uh, values and being clear about the message and the goals of the companies, I think that can be just as powerful as that sort of outsized personality. Is there a danger today when we look particularly at startups and some that become insanely successful that they may even be run by jerks in some cases, they become kind of outliers, and then as a result of success as an outlier, they become a model that other companies and other startup leaders try to follow. I think that's that, that's a great point, and, and I do think that dynamic plays out. When I talk at business schools around the country, a lot of the times during the Q&A, Steve Jobs will come mm-hmm. up and um, you know, we could spend the next four hours talking about everything he accomplished and what a brilliant innovator he was. Uh, but I think by by all accounts, he was a pretty tough and at times nasty boss and the way he would treat people. And so, you know, I worry that people say, well, if I want to be Steve Jobs, I've got to be like him and treat people like that. And frankly, I don't think, you know, you're always going to find exceptions to any rule, and, and Steve Jobs is clearly one of them. But I think there's a very important um and big shift that's going on in uh, particularly tech right now. Uh, because what I've come to appreciate that is that if you're a tech CEO, you basically have two jobs. One is to recruit talent uh, because there is this incredible war for talent because there's such a supply demand imbalance. There's so many more jobs. Um, if you're a talented coder, developer, uh, web designer, you're in high demand. So you're CEO, as a CEO, you're fighting for that talent. But that's only half your job. Once you recruit them and get them to join your company, then your new job starts, which is to retain them because they're getting headhunted every day. So you have to focus much more on creating an environment where people want to go to work every day. And I know that sounds simple, but not all jobs are like that. Um, So I think CEOs in many ways have really, out of necessity, have to become more humble, and they're just not going to get away with treating people badly. The other overlay to this in terms of nimbleness and quickness in which companies need to operate and the culture needs to adapt is the whole idea of the innovator's dilemma, the idea that in many of these companies today, particularly in disruptive areas, by the time success is achieved, you need to be on to something else, otherwise you're going to get left in the dust. And 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 that's the challenge, and and uh, because things do move so fast, as you say, and if it goes back to to me that uh, thing that Steve Case said, which is you know there are attackers and defenders, and so you have to stay in that attacker mindset, not only with your competitors, but frankly with yourself, you have to disrupt yourself. And I've heard some compelling stories from CEOs who had these moments where. They've uh, had to call their board uh, together for a meeting, and they've said to them, um, uh, essentially, look, I know all of you invested in this company on this strategy, this plan, this thesis, but I need to talk to you about the fact that we have to change our strategy completely and follow a new path, uh, because if we don't do that, somebody's going to disrupt us. Uh, and do that. So it's better for us uh, to disrupt ourselves. And so I think if if all leaders can can look at their own companies that way and say, well, how would somebody disrupt us? And then try and do that to your own company before somebody else does. But again, everything about leadership is is hard because it's always about finding that balance point. And you know you have to create a plan and be consistent. Um, you don't want to create disruption every single day because that'll cause chaos and confusion. 
How much more important is it for leaders to understand this idea of small teams, which are often a critical element of the workplace today, in a way that's very different than it was, say, 20 years ago? It, it is very different. Um, used to be much more command and control, and people operate within their departments and work with the same teams. But it just seems that work is uh, being done so much more in small teams. People pulled from uh, across disciplines, and they disband, and that creates a l- demand for a lot of new skills and um, to be an effective team player. And to me, that starts with uh, self-awareness. Uh, you h- simply have to be self-aware if you're going to be an effective team player because you have to know how you come across and how others perceive you. Uh, And I'm sure all your listeners have been in situations with somebody in in that kind of circumstance and somebody doesn't, is a bit off key. They're a bit too aggressive They're And essentially they're not self-aware and that can really throw off um, the chemistry of, of those teams. And, uh, you know, one of the qualities that I've come to appreciate is, is more important among leaders is what I call team smarts, which is kind of the organizational equivalent of street smarts. It's just understanding where the soft levers of power are, just having great antenna for body language in meetings and knowing how to read the room and how people respond to each other. Um, I, I heard something from a CEO recently that the, the job of the CEO is fundamentally responsible uh, fundamentally changed in that it used to be command and control and now it's more about sense and respond Uh, and it's not just sense and respond to the changes in the marketplace but also sense and respond to the dynamics um, inside the company so it's about having those great antennas as opposed to barking orders and one of the things that seems to be really different in companies today particularly some of the younger ones and some of the ceos you, you talk to address this the generational difference that exists within the workplace where you have boomers and millennials at at either end of the extreme with very different attitudes having to work together. Yeah, and and, uh, millennials, um, they do come up a lot in my conversations with the CEOs, and um, they do represent a a challenge and a great opportunity. I've had a lot of great conversations with people about that um, because they're – you know, generalizations are dangerous. Let's just acknowledge that. But the themes that come up a lot is that they they tend to be very impatient. They they do a job for six months and then they go to the boss and say, "Okay, I'm done. I'm ready for my next challenge." Um, and uh, the boss may want to say to themselves, "You know, I wish," or to the person, "Look, I wish you'd dig in for another year." Um, but they also recognize that there isn't that that loyalty that's baked into this generation and that. Um, that if they don't move them around and give them those new challenges, then they might leave. Uh, one of the best insights I heard recently was about um, giving millennials feedback. And I know the, the sort of rap on millennials is that part of that generation who, who got the trophy just for showing up to the soccer game and all that. And, and so people have the sense that they, they need pats on the back. And, and this CEO said, that's not it. Um, this, the millennial generation, they grew up with social media and with the internet. And so they, they're simply used to getting instant feedback to anything they do. You know, you post on Facebook, you immediately get 20 likes. So they're just, they expect to get instant feedback. So at the workplace, they want, it's like, how am I doing? It's not like, how am I doing? Give me an attaboy, but just give me some feedback. 
Um, and so that was a great insight for me that explained a lot about this generation. The other aspect of it, which is addresses the millennials, but addresses just the nature of work today, is it's a much more always on twenty four seven kind of endeavor. It is, and and you know, for the the group, the younger group, maybe that's just the way it's always been. But um, that sort of always on uh, culture has its benefits. You know, there is some speed you can gain in an organization. Uh, but I think the theme that emerged around that from a lot of the interviews is that it's important for the um, leaders to be clear about uh, how they think about things like email. And I think as long as you're clear about your expectations, um, I think then people can understand how you operate and it doesn't become a source of stress. I mean, it's just one example. I interview a lot of CEOs who (laughs) seem to be able to get by on only a few hours of sleep a night, and they tell stories of how early on they would, you know, get up at four in the middle of the night and do some emails. And you know, they would find out later that their staffs were really stressed out by that because they thought, boy, you know, they expect me to spawn, respond right away. And then they'll they'll say to people, look, <laughs> just because I'm up at two in the morning doesn't mean you need to be. So it's kind of creating clear lines around expectations um, that I think can um, help reduce the stress that some of that always-on culture can create. The other corollary to that is the whole idea of emails and communication in general, that we move many steps away from everything being face-to-face. Which is a real danger. I have a chapter in the book called The Hazards of Email, and as much as email was created as a as a wonderful productivity tool, I've come to appreciate just how damaging it can be to corporate cultures. And it's for the simple reason that if, if you think about culture as being the, the sort of sum total of the relationships that people have with each other, um, then email does literally nothing to build those relationships and is much more likely to damage uh, whatever connective tissue uh, is there in the first place. And it's for the simple reason that things get lost in translation with email, which to me is really the key phrase. You can't read tone. You can't read body language. Um, so when we get emails from each other, sometimes we're like amateur archaeologists. We're, you know, we're sort of dusting away trying to figure out the person's intent and what they really m- meant by this. Um, and uh, again, going back to the point that it's supposed to be a productivity tool, we can chew up an entire afternoon, you know, arguing about stuff over email. When if you just walk down the hall and talk to the person, you can solve it in 20 minutes and high five each other and and walk away. Um, I also heard a great point from one CEO. He says uh, she said that email can uh, tap into a really bad part of our brains, which is the part that always wants to have the last word. <laughs> and I've seen that play out with sort of email arguments. The other part of that is a lot of workplaces today are global in nature, and email and that kind of communication becomes essential. It, it, true, um, but there's also this wonderful wonderful thing called you know Skype and video conferencing. Right. And, and so what I've heard from some CEOs, they have very explicit rules of their company. If you're... Um, you can't argue over email. You can't have more than one back and forth. So if I disagree with you, you disagree with me, uh, and we're not making any headway, then his rule is you have to pick up the phone, 
or get on Skype, um, even if you're, you know, in a, in a very different time zone and, and things get solved that way. I mean, it's, it's a nice little thought experiment to think uh, about how the world would be different if email were invented back in the day when phones were invented and phones came along just more, much more recently when email was invented. <laughs> and, you know, if that were the case, people, people would go, oh, boy, this phone, this thing is amazing. You can just you can hear people's tone. You can understand so much more than with email. Uh, and you sort of have to think about that to realize, um, the, again, the hazards of email. And, you know, the phone is a pretty good thing. You can really understand uh, so much more just by hearing somebody's voice. What all of this circles back to is this idea that culture is really built from the relationships between people. And there is a sense sometimes that particularly younger people in the workplace today are not as sensitive as they should be to the idiosyncrasies that are part of that relationship and even the foibles and frailties of others. Uh, I, I'm not sure about that i mean you know with any generalizations there's going to be ex sure. exceptions but um i i think the the danger to me is that the, the younger generation they they grew up just sort of texting their friends and communicating online on facebook um and so i i will agree with you that there's a, a point that they have to be particularly aware of because um you know it's it's one thing to be texting with your uh, circle of friends but when you go to work and you're meeting people of different ages and different divisions, um, it's your job to expand your network, to grow uh, the number of relationships you have with colleagues. And um, I, I think it's very easy for people to get to just sit behind their increasingly big computer screen all day long and communicate with the world that way. Uh, and uh, it's just it's something that we always have to remind ourselves, just to get up. Uh, walk around, talk to people in person because that's not only good for your career, but it's good for the culture because that builds the relationships. When you talk to these CEOs and you've talked to so many about the, not only the changes in their particular business, but changes in management and leadership and all the things that were, and culture, all the things that we're talking about, how do they envision the world or the workplace might be different? and that management, in fact, might be different 20 years from now? It's a great question, and, and I feel like when I talk to these tech CEOs that uh, I am getting a glimpse of that future you're asking about, um, where it's much more uh, their job to, um, to think about culture because whether it's a supply-demand imbalance, um, that's affecting things or the attitudes of the millennial generation that's coming up in the generation after after them that I think people just aren't going to put up <laughs> uh, with a bad workplace as much as they used to and and you know let's be honest that a lot of people need you know they need the paycheck and there's a lot of bad bosses out there I'm, I'm uh, I hear from a lot of readers who are practically in tears because their bosses are so bad and there's always going to be bad bosses but I, I do think one of the slow shifts that's going to happen is um, that CEOs are going to have to focus much more on culture uh, because they, for two reasons, one, they need to retain, uh, recruit and retain the best talent. And I also think that there's going to be a growing appreciation for the fact that culture is going to be the X factor that separates 
companies and organizations because if if you have two teams and we see this play out in sports all the time maybe some one team looks better on paper but because the team spirit the culture is better than another team that they win the game and i think that's true in business as well but the thing about culture is you can't put it into a financial model it's not part of that strategy discussion you have with wall street it is more amorphous uh, but it's really the x factor to me and are business schools addressing this uh, sure, they're starting to, and uh, you know, I think one of the broad shifts we're seeing in business schools is that they are moving away, uh, de-emphasizing from some of the the harder skills, you know, accounting and and uh, focusing more, shifting the balance to some of the the softer skills and understanding organizational behavior and and leadership. So uh, I, I am seeing that that start to play out in the business school school world too. Adam Bryant, his book is Quick and Nimble, Lessons from Leading CEOs on How to Create a Culture of Innovation. It's just out from Times Books. Adam, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.